and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician, producer John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular uh, posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trisha's latest novel is White Crows, and Rob's latest novel is Toolpuzz, now available in audio as well as print and ebooks. Our guest today is Jude Kurovan, a PhD cosmologist, futurist, planetary healer. She's a lot of things. I keep going on. Member of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle and previously one of the most senior businesswomen in the UK. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford and a doctorate in archaeology from the University of Reading. She's traveled extensively, worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions, and is a lifelong researcher into the nature of reality. She's the author of six books, including The Cosmic Hologram, and is co-founder of Whole World View. Her newest book is the story of Gaia, the big breath, and the evolutionary journey of our conscious planet. Welcome, Jude. We're glad hey, you could make it. <laughs> welcome, Jude. Well, Rob Trish, it's lovely to be with you, and thanks to our maestro, John. It's good to meet you. <laughs> All right. So, how, uh, Jude, how would you, to start out, how would you summarize your book briefly? It's complex, that's for sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it, it is, but it's also a story. It literally is uh-huh. a story of our universe, going right. back to uh, the first moment 13.8 billion years ago. And as I describe it, not in the big bang, which were, were taught, it wasn't big, and it wasn't a bang in the sense that it was, instead of implying that it was chaotic, it was incredibly fine-tuned and exquisitely ordered to the extent that our universe embodied an evolutionary impulse from that very first moment, from simplicity to complexity and eventually to us. So I described that journey as as the big breath, you know, it was the first moment of an ongoing big breath as space expanded and time's flowed ever since. And so instead of the old paradigm that we're taught of essentially a dead and meaningless and purposeless universe, what the evidence is now doing is turning that completely on its head. And so we're seeing that we are, you know, the microcosmic co-creators of an innately meaningful and purposeful universe that literally exists to evolve. So that's the whole story of Gaia, because Gaia is the name that the ancient Greeks gave to the Earth goddess. So what I'm talking about now is the evidence of a living universe and therefore a sentient planetary home. And, and that whole journey, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and I, I love to, to sort of hear your responses to it, because a lot of folks are saying that the book is reading them. It's almost as though Gaia's sitting down <laughs> and telling them her story and uh. the story of our entire universe, <clears throat> of our important, vital role in its, you know, in its evolutionary impulse. So that's I like I like those <laughs> I like those introduction uh, sections you have at the beginning of your chapters that you know, they seem to be Gaia or the, the universe speaking uh, in those uh-huh. parts, and uh, you sometimes as well. So it's 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 interesting. Uh, well, what were you doing? What was your intention with with those sections that you have in well, italics? Yeah, I mean, as as you were saying earlier in Trisha's very kind introduction, I've written other books. I mean, the story of Gaia is the seventh. The Cosmic Hologram was the sixth. So, and I never meant to be an author. I never (laughs) set out to be an author. Um, It so happened that, you know, very kindly publishers were just told that I might be able to write before I'd written anything (laughs) and and invited me to be an author for them. So um, Uh it's a wonderful journey. Um, 
but that 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 idea of those intros to the chapters was my husband's idea yeah. because he felt that it would bring a deeper sense of experiential uh-huh. you know relationship yeah, it does. right yeah. Yeah, and and I loved it. So I really sort of asked Gaia, "What should I do here?" And I've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, journeying in my life. You know, multidimensionally walking between worlds as well as as amazing places. Yeah, in and some that, ways it seems like you were channeling Gaia. Yeah, I, I, uh-huh. I, feel, I feel that that was the case. Uh-huh. Yeah. Talk to us and about. I feel very privileged, and I feel incredibly honoured and privileged because I really did do feel Rob and Trish that the. The book wrote me just as reads the same, uh, you know, Gaia's you know, sitting <laughs> down and, and sharing her story with us. Wow. I did feel the book wrote me in that sense. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, talk about the, the role of sound in the universe and the creation of the universe, the primordial om as uh, being the sound and impulse of the Brahmatic breath of creation that sang our universe into being. And it's described in the Upanishads, the ancient mm-hmm. Vedic uh, text, but also now you say has uh, scientific connections. Absolutely. Uh, well, what we know is when we do go back to that very first moment of the big breath, the first moment of space and time where our universe was born or the appearance of our universe was born, because we now also appreciate that its appearance of energy and matter and space and time emerge from deeper non-physical realms of causation. This is its all-meaningful, all-purposeful, all-pervasive um, sort of appearance. Um And so if we go back to that very beginning, it was the hottest it's ever been. But it was not disordered because there were primordial magnetic fields that really ordered that incredible temperature that was trillions upon trillions of times hotter than the hottest stars. Nonetheless, it was part of the way in which the sort of the laws of physics were able to relate and set off our universe on this incredible evolutionary journey. But because it was so hot, atoms could not form. The, the basic, you know, the basic particularization of energy and matter was, was still in its very, very, very early process. So the universe would not cool down enough as space expanded to be transparent to light and therefore the formation of atoms until about 380,000 years wow. along its journey. But at the very beginning, it was transparent to sound and so we now know we can even know the sort of the it seems that there were three a sort of waves of three notes that pulsed through that very early epoch of the universe Hmm. uh, and essentially began over that 380,000 years or so to shepherd the very earliest matter into what would become hundreds of millions of years later the first stars so this as as Rob you said reflects the Upanishads. It reflects this sense of a, a primordial om that yeah. sang our universe into being. And the other thing that I find fascinating is the best signs we've got of the way that happened were effectively three notes. In other words, three vibrationary levels of that sound. And of course, uh-huh. when we're taught how to, to you know work with the om, it's A-O-U, A-A-U-M, Um, So it's not a single note. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're finding in that first epoch of our universe. What what do you think, uh, Jude, Gaia's purpose was with COVID? Uh, Thank you for this question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not, I I wouldn't presume to speak for Gaia on this one. Mm -hmm. But my own sense is that, First of all, when 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 the book, I do write about viruses mm-hmm. because they are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of 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 Gaia's biological children of biological organisms, and they're essentially her simplest. They they've evolved, uh-huh. whereas most of her biosphere has evolved from simplicity to complexity. They've evolved to ever greater levels of simplicity. But nonetheless, in their simplicity is great intelligence, hmm. because we know now that viruses have language, that they can oh. actually communicate with each other. And not only do they have language, they have dialects. So oh. groups of viruses <clears throat> can communicate amongst themselves. And we know, and this is in the book too, that there's research to suggest that they make a conscious choice 
as to whether to kill the hosts or enter some form of symbiotic relationship with them. And the whole story of Gaia's biological evolutionary journey is where viruses have been evolutionary change agents. And what we know is that the evolution of, of Gaia's biology, biosphere, has not been a linear progression. It's been a series of waves and then collapses, waves and collapses. But at every collapse point, it's been generally, I mean, there have been occasions when it, it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's been through an asteroid, for example, with the, with the dinosaurs, but where the dominant species have almost come to a, a cul-de-sac ending in their evolutionary flow. And so Gaia and the whole Gaia sphere has has essentially brought about a collapse. But when that collapse has happened, incredibly rapidly thereafter, the entirety of her innate intelligence has come together in radically different biological forms, body types, different, um, you know, types of organism that have then continued that evolutionary arc from simplicity to complexity. And what we're finding is that viruses, because they can mutate so quickly, are a significant part of this sort of what's what's sometimes called reticulous assembly. But it's basically this this bringing together a possibility, biological possibility for further evolution. So guess what? Here we are, you know, stopped in our tracks at a point where we have become unsustainable with regard to to life on Earth, because of our our misunderstanding of what reality is all about and our buying into the illusion of separation, that a virus comes along and literally stops us in our tracks. Uh And it seems to me, with all its challenges, to offer us an opportunity to reconsider who we think we are, to literally remember who we really are, to literally wake up and remember we're inseparable. And this is what I write about, but this is what the evidence is showing. And it seems to me that the virus, COVID, offers an opportunity to yeah. actually, you know, realise, recognise, uh-huh. appreciate that. And where we go from here, this is our collective moment of choice. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. I have. Did, did you learn all this at Oxford? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just amazed. I mean, you... I mean, did they talk about this in physics? No. Well, first of all, I'm 70 years old. So I was at Oxford half a century ago. And all this is like the leading edge, the best scientific breakthroughs now. No, I mean, I had my first experience of what I'd call uh, multidimensional realms and this deeper unified nature of reality beginning when I was four years old. Wow. And so I was I was having a great time walking between worlds all the way up to going to Oxford. When I was yeah, give o- us an example of what you mean. Okay, what what happened when you were four? Well, the the first remembrance I have is that a discarnate light came into my bedroom and I started to hear clairaudiently, it wasn't through my ears, it was an uh-huh. inner hearing a voice, and that just became an ongoing an on- uh-huh. ongoing journey. Um of clairaudience, clairvoyance, um, telepathy, remote viewing, mm. but also intuition, you know, because we, yeah. we sort of look at these <clears throat> supernormal, you know, attributes which are natural to us. But our greatest superpower in that regard is our intuition. Mm-hmm. So I've learned over many, many years to hear and listen and honor my intuition and, and follow its guidance. Huh. And what a journey it's been. But when I went to Oxford, um, I was also fascinated when I was a kid with astronomy and I was fascinated with quantum physics when I was a mm-hmm. kid. <laughs> I yeah. should have got out more. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so I, I ended up getting a scholarship to Oxford when I was 18. Wow. And, yeah. and um, I thank you. And um, studying physics. And, and in the time I was there, um, I specialized in quantum physics and cosmology. But no, I wasn't taught any of this. I mean, what <laughs> okay. I'm sharing with this is, is very, very recent. And so, but it gave me the scientific language. So uh-huh. it gave me a discipline. It gave me a methodology. It gave me a language. 
that I was able to, alongside all the other threads in my life and the scenic route I've travelled, uh-huh. <laughs> to continue to be absolutely fascinated and therefore to stay abreast of leading edge science over the last half century. When you Is, go to a place, hold on, Rob. Okay. As she's talking, I keep thinking of things. Um, when you go to a place like Stonehenge, do you hear the clairaudiently voices about the place? I do, but also when I when I I studied, I researched my PhD in, mm-hmm. uh, in archaeology, in anthropological archaeology. And my thesis was called Walking Between Worlds. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but it was very much the story of um, the hunter-gatherers <clears throat> of the Mesolithic moving to be the Neolithic herders, pastoralist farmers, mm. the Neolithic. And what that meant for them, perhaps, in terms of their cosmology, because a cosmology is, is how we make sense of ourselves in the mm. world. You know, it, it's it's how do we describe reality? And so if you're a hunter-gatherer, always on the move, perhaps mainly in forests, yeah, along rivers and waterways, um, you have a different relationship with your surroundings than if you settled. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you're doing some herding and some summer pastures and growing crops. So, And, and we see that in that trans- transition, our ancestors began to create monuments in the landscape for the first time. Before that, you know, they'd honoured the web of life, it seems, uh, they'd honoured the, the natural places of power. Yeah. But when they moved to the Neolithic, they started to create stone circles, henges, um, all sorts of monuments. Huh. And I think that was that was reflective of their their changing view of, of the world around them and themselves and cosmology. So when I did my archaeological PhD, it was, I was really interested in those ancient ways of of making sense of of, mm-hmm. of the nature of reality and how that correlated with the transition we're going through now. Because what we're going through now, as we literally with this leading edge science, the old paradigm of materialism and separation, as I right. said, has been turned completely on its head. I mean, in a sense, I think what we're going through now, we'll be going through in these coming years is even more significant than the changes that they went through in their own perceptions. So, yes, I did. And, yes, when you do a PhD, you have to then get the evidence that validates (laughs) it. (laughs) So, so Jude, is the the academic world getting any closer to accepting the concept of the universe as a conscious entity and guidance? I would say say it is. I mean, you you may not have heard, but... In 2022, well, first of all, let's get, take a step back to the beginning of the quantum era. The quantum pioneers were realizing that the old mechanistic view of the universe had its place, but it needs to be expanded into a deeper realization of a much more relational, interdependent universe. Mm-hmm. Now, for quantum physics to work at all, it was realized theoretically at that point, that our universe in its entirety had to exist and evolve as a what's called a non-locally unified whole. In other words, within space-time, the speed of light is the is the cosmic speed cop. No signal, no information can go faster than the speed of light within space-time. But what was confusing was this quantum realization that the entire universe had to know itself simultaneously it had to be non-locally unified so there was this big debate about either or because relativity was saying cosmic speed limit within space time quantum physics was saying non-locally unified einstein called it spooky action at a distance he didn't like it because he thought it was an either or what we now realize it's a both and so both within space time and the appearance of our universe of energy, matter, space, time. Yes, there is a limit to the speed of signal, which is why we can have this conversation, Mm -hmm. which is why we can say go back 13.8 billion years to the (laughs) beginning of what became a unidirectional flow of time within our universe. And our universe is non-locally unified, which means that the sort of supernormal phenomena that we were just touching on 
is a natural attribute of a unified universe. Now, Rob, your question was, is science coming around? (laughs) And, And the answer is yes, because in 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was given to three uh, researchers, right. John Clauser, Anton, uh, uh, Anton Zellinger and Alan Aspect, who've been studying the non-locality of our universe at, at large scales for decades. Now, the mm-hmm. point of this is quite important because Einstein ne- didn't get his Nobel Prize for relativity because mm. it wasn't seen to be settled science. So he got it for the photoelectric effect, which showed that light is quantized. Okay, these guys got the Nobel in 2022 because this universal non-locality is now deemed to be settled science. Wow. Mm. I've never heard this explained so well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you read books on quantum physics and it's, it's like another language, but you just explained it beautifully. Thank you. So one one of the uh, issues I have uh, reading your book is uh, just personally is the uh, the concept of space time. I mean, how are minutes and years calculated uh, in the creation of the universe? I mean, there's no there's no uh, way of uh, judging time. I would think, and and what and and to that extent, what about the idea that there is actually no linear time that everything unfolds simultaneously? Well, that's not right. Um, I mean, it was something that's, that's about 60 years out of date now. So <laughs> you should catch up with the eight ball on this. No, it was, called, it was called the block universe. And it was put in place because there wasn't this understanding that we now have of this flow of time. It was actually put in place before even I think the Big Bang got coined. Mm-hmm. So it goes back a long, long way, and it really is outdated science. It's like you know the epicycles of a of a of, a, of an Earth centric solar system. It's you know <laughs> part of that. We've been there, done that. Uh-huh. The T-shirt moved on. Um, so so no, it, it it's not that, and that's not what we're measuring. The other thing to note is that time. We have a personal sense of time. Yeah. Right. yeah. Einstein Luke. said this, you know, Einstein said so many people said it, you know, I can I can be doing something and I can get literally lost and, and it's two hours. And I thought, oh, it's 10 minutes. Right. Yeah? Or I can be waiting in a in a dentist waiting room and, and 10 minutes seems like two hours. Right. Um, it works both ways. <clears throat> but as a cosmologist, we literally could not be here unless there was a universal objective time frame that Mm. goes back to that first moment of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago and has flowed one way ever since. And the reason it flows one way, and Brian Green, the cosmologist Brian Green, wrote a great book about this, is because our universe began in in its most ordered state, its simplest state. Had it not done that, time could have gone either way. And quantum physics allows for time to go either way. Relativity doesn't, because what Einstein's genius identified was although space is relative to an observer, time is relative to an observer, he went one step further that's often missed. They need to be considered together as space dash time. And then the whole universe hangs together because that space dash time, space time, is invariant. So in other words, an observation that takes place here on Earth now of a galaxy 100 million light years away would recognize an event happening in that galaxy in the same dimensions of space-time as another observer in another galaxy would also identify that event and this is key because if that wasn't the case if space time wasn't invariant our universe just would not hang together it would literally mean that the laws of physics were not universal and everything we know about science is that they are but rob this is important because what we also now realize is that this direction of of universal time which would be measured whether here on Earth in minutes and hours and days, doesn't matter. The measures do not matter. Because what we're realising now at the fundamental scale of our universe, its appearance, is something called the Planck scale. 
And the Planck scale emerges from the relationship of the laws of physics. And it relates to energy, matter, space, <clears throat> time, and temperature. There are five what's called Planck scales. But the point is that when you look at the laws of physics and pull them together, there are four constants, one of which is the speed of light, another is what's called the gravitational constant, and two others relate to, to the quantum world, which is Planck's constant itself, and the other relates to thermodynamics, which is called Boltzmann's constant. Now, that's very nerdy, but it's very important <laughs> because when we put the laws of physics together, those constants can be shared of any measurement that we apply to them. And that means that the Planck scale constant, uh, the Planck scale measures in terms of energy, matter, space, time, temperature are independent of whatever measures we call them. So, for example, the Planck scale of length, which is where the reality, the finite reality of our universe, this appearance comes into being, is minute. It's as tiny as a, to an atom, as an atom is to the whole universe. Huh. It's what's called 10 to the minus 35 meters. But it could be anything we want to call it. And if we were having this conversation on another planet in another galaxy, we could say it's XXXYYY gobbledygook. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It's the same length. In space and the and the Planck scale of time, which is what's been unfolding ever since that first moment of the big breath, is even tinier. Wait for this. It's 10 to the minus 44 seconds. In other, <laughs> in other words, the whole experience and existence and evolution of our universe has gone from that most minute beginning 13.8 billion years ago with that big breath of space expanding and time flowing ever since. And every Planck scale moment adds more information, Come embodied on. experience evolving within our universe. And Rob, this is really important because I know that there's a lot of folks who say, well, time is illusory. It really isn't. As a, cosmo as a cosmologist, if it wasn't as real as us sitting here, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, the, there's two senses of time, linear time, and that deeper sense of time that exists outside of time. I of mean, when, uh, when, when people travel in uh, space, if they're doing that, and they could come back and they would be younger than uh, when they left or uh, younger than every, everybody they knew, isn't that? Well, the, that's the, a flaw. That's another flaw. No? Okay. In, in, well, that's I get all that's the another flaw in the understanding of relativity. <laughs> okay. That's another flaw. Explain the, the it. Most, well, because the most fundamental, I mean, it, in theory, that could potentially happen. The issue is causality. Okay. Hmm. The one fundamental attribute of the flow of time within our universe is that causality cannot be violated hmm. yeah okay. so this idea of somebody coming back younger and therefore affecting any historical causality would be it's like it's it's past not go you know you cannot do that so we we're still yet to experimentally go through any possibility and the jury is still open as to how that might happen without causality being an issue. Because, you know, what this model is showing us is that the supernormal attributes that I've just talked about, such as telepathy or precognition, mm -hmm. um, don't violate causality. That's the key. Uh -huh. If we understand that, then we understand the rest. And as you quite rightly say, we also have the attributes to, to attune with and communicate with multidimensional realms that are not part of the universal space-time. Okay. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let me jump on Rob's uh, bandwagon here. So <laughs> I, I think I think maybe this is the maybe this is an obvious question. So 
So, so, so time travel's impossible. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, I would say time travel. If it time travel, if it violates causality within our universe, is impossible. Huh. Okay. Yep. And I'll lay. I'd, I'm not a betting woman, but I'd I'd lay a lot of money on that one. So suppose you have a precognition yes. where you you know you sense the future. Can you change as a result? of that precognition, can you change an event? I think there's two aspects of this, Trish. There's there's presentiment and there's precognition. Uh-huh. And I think what we're finding is, although the past is the past, you know, there is this arrow of time from the beginning of our universe. We are at the bow wave now, at the here and now of our universe. But research is showing, and the reason I describe it as a bow wave, is it doesn't seem to be a sort of a, a moment cut off. It, it seems as though from the experimentation and research we're doing that there's a sort of potentializing of the possibilities that then become the here and the now. So when we have a presentiment or a precognition, we're tapping into those potentialities. So the question then is, can we, with that realization, because of course they've not come into the here and now, right. so they're not violating causality. Huh. Are, we able, are we able to to change? I've had both. I've had presentiments where I've not been able to change what's then come. Uh-huh. Precognitions where I had a sense that I can. But the question of this bow wave is the way I describe it is, you know, when you see a, a ship or a boat going across a, a lake or a, or mm-hmm. a sea, there is a bow wave at the front. There's all that churning water. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'm describing the, the, the sort of the, the future becoming the present. But we don't know how far forward potentially that bow wave extends. I mean, the work that Dean Radin has done at IONS right. suggested, mm-hmm. you know, very short time. And yet we have other um we have other um prophecies that suggest the potential of that bow wave can be longer, but perhaps very, very nuanced. Because the further out the prophecies go, the more, you know, they're Rorschach tests rather than, you know, very specific. But nonetheless, the research that's being done and the experimental work that's being done. And you'd expect it from quantum physics, actually, that there would be that potential superposition of potentiality, a possibility, not to change the laws of physics at all, Uh to recognize that we're talking about an in formational universe wow. where those possibilities you know what is our collective moment of choice for example mm-hmm. well i asked because we had one guest on who's a dreamer and right. when he first started doing his dreaming he was living in amsterdam and dreamed that very specifically how he how he died he was assaulted by two men and you know woke up and thought he was dead you know and he even in the dream saw himself leaving his body and going to his girlfriend's apartment in New York. And he was in Amsterdam. Two weeks later, he got ready to leave for the U.S. and the same thing unfolded. And this time he saved his own life. Right. So where where would that fit? That- I think I mean, I think these are really important, you know, accounts. I think the the, the difficulty is that the validation of them. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I'm absolutely open to all of this. Um, But one of the things I think is helpful in in researching, first of all, I think the scientific method that we have is too limited. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I, 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 you know, from my own experiences as well, I know there are many ways of knowing. I guess the point here, and and this is where things called meta-analyses are so helpful, is when you get a lot of these accounts, Mm As case studies, then they begin to show patterns. Right. And it's the patterns that I think can help us. Because for me, naturalizing these ways of knowing, naturalizing communications with, with, with multidimensional sentience and intelligences is, uh-huh. is a fundamental aspect of our conscious evolution. Hmm. So I, I love, you know, I, I really appreciate and I really appreciate it when people are willing to share these accounts and the more they come together, the more patterning we can see in them 
and therefore the, 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 the better grounding we have. What's strange is that ma- mainstream science still is questioning the existence of of psychic ability, like what you're talking about, telepathy, you know, precognition. Well, you know, you know, when at the beginning of the quantum revolution and relativity revolution, um, you know, people decried that, as I say, Einstein right. did not get his Nobel <laughs> for relativity because yeah. it wasn't settled science. And even now, it's taken 100 years for the Nobel in 2022, more than 100 years, to be given to researchers that uh-huh. are really revealing or helping to reveal universal non-locality. So what I'm writing about in The Cosmic Hologram and and, and the story of Gaia aren't just my ideas, as you've read, they bring together the research of of tens of thousands of researchers, Mm. you know, across all scales of existence and numerous fields of research showing the same thing, showing that the appearance of our universe, its energy, matter, space, time, isn't its fundamental reality, that it's Mm. it is reality, but it arises, its appearance arises from deeper levels of non-physical and intelligent causation as meaningful information. So, and holographically uh-huh. manifest. So we're putting all the pieces now evidentially together that enables this, 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 this new unitive understanding of the unified nature of reality that, that converges. It converges with universal wisdom teachings, with spiritual <clears throat> teachings, with indigenous teachings. Right. And so, well, you know, science is science. Good science always goes, always follows the evidence wherever it leads. Uh-huh. And I think more and more scientists are acknowledging this and coming to this party. And, <laughs> and um, I think this next couple of years, next few years is going to be an absolute sea change. Wow. And we'll go ahead hey, real quick, just off that, because yeah. because I think that's something that uh, I think that's something that gets conflated a lot these days is uh, <laughs> people see technology, people, people see technology uh, evolving quickly. And then you hear people and then you hear phrases like the speed of science. In actuality, science is very methodical, very process oriented. Science is actually a process. <laughs> it's not. It it, it's so, 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 you know, so the, 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 yes, there's science behind this, the, the technologies we use, but the evolution of that technology is building on top of, uh, on top of, uh, science that's, that's actually fairly old. Well, yes and no. Um, I agree with you. The technologies has, I mean, again, go back to the beginning of the quantum relativity eras. The things that were being discovered were very, very unsettling to the majority of the researchers. And some of them, such as Max Planck, Schrodinger, Einstein and others, you know, were open to what the evidence was showing them. And some of them did go to the Upanishads, did go to the Shnavari Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and many others mm-hmm. and realised that what they were discovering, you know, had been written about thousands of years right. before. But because of that was so unsettling, because it was bringing consciousness, the nature of consciousness, it, as the as the elephant in the room, and, and that was too unsettling for most of the researchers. So that got pushed to the side for nearly more than a century, really. Mm-hmm. And so, Rob, as you say, it was technology that the focus was then on what can this new science tell us technologically? And that's been the speed that's come to this point, and, and you know, incredible ways. But the deeper questions and the deeper realisations are only now being brought front and centre, because the evidence is not allowing them to be peripheralized anymore. Huh. Because what the evidence is showing us now is that mind and consciousness aren't something we have. They're literally what we and the whole world are. Huh. And this, of course, was the, the, the <clears throat> viewpoints and Planck and Schrodinger and others. So, But we now have the evidence to support this. So this is meaning that we, you know, we can't go on in that old, well, we can, but, you know, the old paradigm of materialism and separation is literally being turned upside down because the evidence is showing us that it is no longer the deeper perception of the nature of reality 
we know somebody like um physicist david bohm for instance absolutely yeah i mean where he says it's all you know everything even space time arises from this inner order that that's basically what you're talking about with the universe yeah Yeah. okay and david was talking about this I, i i must i heard this the other day and i need to go back and check but I was told that the first time he still came forward with this was in 1952. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's right, that was the year of my birth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> and, of course, and of course, he talked about the implicate order giving rise right. to the right. explicate order. Uh-huh. But he also talked about active information. And uh-huh. at the time, there wasn't sufficient understanding of the nature of information, meaningful right. information. There wasn't any understanding of what's called the holographic principle. Mm-hmm. There was any understanding, which is a lot of my work, about expanding the laws of thermodynamics to the laws of infodynamics. Mm-hmm. There was none of that, and there wasn't hardly any of the evidence that I've included in the cosmic hologram and the story of Gaia, because most of this evidence is in the last decade. Huh. So he was an extraordinary pioneer. Yeah, he really was. Now is, is, is really coming forward and being you know, validated. Um, and I think, game. I mean, we used his his theory about the implicate and the explicate, eh, explicate to try to explain what synchronicity is, yeah. you know, because, be, and, and it, it fits, you know. And this is, this is what I write about, which is why uh-huh. I write, about, you know, what I'm writing about, the cosmic hologram. As, right, as it's the same, first, yeah. Uh, is, is exactly that. That synchronicity, supernormal uh, attributes and phenomena, intuition are all part of a living, conscious, unified, multidimensional evolutionary universe where mind and consciousness literally are what we in the whole world are. And none of that violates causality within Uh space time. It's the whole life cycle to unfold, and yet still the ability to engage with and communicate with these other dimensions of sentience. Whereas Rob said earlier, you know, do not have the linearity of the time within our universe. Right. Hmm. So if we, we live in the explicate uh, and the everything is derived from the implicate order, does that mean that before there was the universe, the implicate order existed? Well, I don't tend to, it's a great question, Rob, and I don't tend to use Bohm's implicate explicate uh-huh. because I feel they're a little bit superseded. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is they, they still sort of, he never understood how the implicate could become the explicate. Right. And what I've been able to do now in these two books, but also with thanks to all the evidence of so many researchers as well as my own work, is showing how our universe is created. And it does so in a sense because when we go beyond our universe to what Einstein called cosmic mind, what spiritual traditions might call uh, God or Allah or great spirit or great mystery, um, we realize that that infinite and eternal cosmic mind has thoughts. Uh And we might like to call our universe a great thought, which Sir James Jeans, the great Edwardian uh, philosopher, did. A great thought, a finite great thought of an infinite eternal cosmos. And, of course, in, in this understanding, God, great spirit, the creator is not out there. The creator and the creation is all one. Uh-huh. It's an experiential differentiation of a great thought and where we are microcosmic co-creators evolutionary co-partners if we you know respond to the invitation it seems to me of our universe in this well, great unfolding story well I, I would think too that your concept of life after death is very is conscious yes of course <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty absolutely cool. Absolutely. So, you know, experiences such, such as near-death experiences, afterlife, life, mm. continuation, uh, afterlife, um, communication, multidimensional uh. communications, engagement, archetypal intelligences are all part of this expanded grandeur mm. of a multidimensional living 
evolutionary unified meaningful purposeful (laughs) another question uh at the creation of the universe the the breath great breath there was no matter so where did where did matter come from how does (laughs) why is there matter at all well first of all we need to understand that energy and matter are incredibly ephemeral when we dig down into quantum scales or lower, you know, they're not the atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons aren't the little building ball, billiard balls that we might have been taught at school. Mm. We go down to a 99.999999999999% no thingness where what there is is relational fields of information. So the appearance of energy matter, the appearance of space-time, arises from these deeper non-physical realms of causation as meaningful information. In other words, the stuff of our, the appearance of our universe is meaningful in dash formation, expressed as what we call energy matter and in a complementary way as space-time. And just to put the cherry or the icing (laughs) on the top of the ice cream sundae, (laughs) that our entire universe is essentially a holographic projection from the boundary of what we call space-time, which is why as space expands and as time flows forward, our universe can embody ever more meaningful evil, uh, meaningful information and purposeful evolutionary experience. Oh. So it all hangs together on that basis, but we have to then go beyond the 20th century perspectives. Mm-hmm of the appearance to the deeper fundamental realities. And this is what Bohm was talking about. He just uh-huh. didn't know at that point how it happened, right? how it hung together. And we now are understanding to a greater degree, although it's, a, it's still a work in progress, it's always a work <laughs> in progress, um, how that, that occurs. Oops. And the other thing to say is that Roger Penrose, mm-hmm. who I first met when I was at Oxford all those years ago, won the Nobel Prize in Physics a couple of years ago because of his work essentially on the holographic principle. So again, this is becoming settled science. Well, you know, Michael Talbot was ahead of a lot of people when he wrote The Holographic Universe. I think that came out in 1992. And he wasn't even a scientist. (laughs) He was a journalist. Yeah. Bless that man. But I I suspect I'd have loved if he'd have been with us still because I I know me too. So excited. So excited. But clearly he had a very powerful, both, um, you know, intellectual grasp, Uh but also I suspect intuitive grasp. Right. I think so too. Definitely. And he writes a lot. He wrote a lot about his own experiences and uh, in this book, uh, just, you know, some amazing experiences. Yeah, Yeah. I love that book. Now I'm going to have to. Okay, now how in in your cosmic hologram book, tell me what how does that differ from what I mean, obviously, it's a lot farther (laughs) ahead of where Talbot was in 1992. But do you is it the same type of principles? What it, you've been talking about. It's, it's much further along. I mean, uh-huh. 1992 to 2017. Right. And what I've been able to do as a cosmologist, because of course Michael was brilliant, but he was a journalist. He wasn't uh-huh. a cosmologist or a physicist. What I've been able to do is really bring all the science together in a model, huh. as I mentioned earlier, by expanding the three laws of thermodynamics to three laws of infodynamics. Uh-huh. I've been able to sort of show how information expresses itself as as conserved quantized energy matter secondly how information expresses itself as what i call in tropic space time the first allows the universe to exist the second to evolve and the third law is is showing how this this temperature uh, and an information relationship plays out through the whole life cycle of our universe wow. so by bringing all that together and with a holographic principle and all the evidence, I've been able, I hope, to lay out uh, a sharing of where, you know, we can now, I hope, literally turn that old paradigm of separation and separation right. on its head. <clears throat> oh, okay. Would you say that? Would you say okay. that the? Would you say that the entire universe exists within each one of us? Then, well, in a sense, it's holographic. We are a pixel. 
Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. And just as we are 37 trillion cell community, each of our bodies is a 37 yeah. trillion cell community. You know, the point about holograms is the whole is when every tiny pixel. Exactly. Right. Every pixel. And it's the old hermetic tradition of as above, so below, as within, so without. So, you know, as a unified universe, we are inseparable from its wholeness. And we're part of, of what, you know, I think David Bohm talked about. It's holoky. Uh-huh. Are scaling up and scaling down a multi-level communities of relationship. You know, it, when the when the when the indigenous wisdom tells us or invites us to connect with all our relations, literally the whole universe and every aspect of its existence are our relations. We are part of a universal family of consciousness of life. <laughs> You teach? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I would love to take a class from you, my God. I've never heard this stuff explained so well. Thank you. Uh, funnily enough, I, I have been just invited by Humanities team. So I'm doing a, I'm, I'm co-teaching uh, a, a 16 module course with Andrew Harvey. Huh. Oh, up, oh. And I'm also doing one called Our Conscious Revolution. Our transformational journey to whole being and belonging. Because this wow. has shown us we belong, you know. Right, right. We belong. Yeah, that's sweet. I would like to I would like to hear a conversation with you and Andrew Harvey. That would be Boy, interesting. I know that'd be fascinating. <laughs> oh, it's already out there. We had a fantastic <laughs> session with Steve Carroll <laughs> and the folks at Humanities team. It was just it was just fabulous. Yeah. And it's a free program. So if uh-huh. you go to Humanities team, that that one hour and Andrew's wonderful. So yeah. Where, where can we find that? Uh, I think just uh, go to Humanities Team okay. uh, as a website and then um, just, you know, Google for, for Andrew and myself. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, this Jude, is-, is the is the universe continuing to evolve? And what does that mean? Yes, Rob, it does, because it's been on this journey for the last 13.8 billion years. I mean, yeah. the hydrogen in our bodies... And in the waters of our planetary home, Gaia, the hydrogen is as old as the universe. It's a few wow. moments less than the age of the universe. So, you know, our story is the story of our universe and vice oh, versa. Yes. So it's been evolving from simplicity to complexity and ever greater levels of individuated self-awareness and collective interdependence ever since. So, yes, and it seems to me that as I mentioned earlier, we're on the bow wave of its here and now and its continuing evolutionary impulse because it embodies this impulse to evolve. So for me, this isn't so much about our biological evolution. It's our conscious uh-huh. evolution. Mm-hmm. It's waking up to all that we've shared today. It's waking up to this grand and most wonderful adventure that it seems to me we're being invited to literally wake up, as Ken Wilber said, and grow up and clean <laughs> up because of the trauma of separation and show up and link up and lift up and level up and light up. And what mm-hmm. an amazing invitation to become co-evolutionary partners, conscious co-evolutionary partners with our beloved planetary home, Gaia, and our entire universe. Huh. Wow. So. So what about what about global warming? Where do you stand on that? And what's our future? Well, what I would say is that, you know, the old paradigm of materialism separation, Mm -hmm. it seems to me we've had a dis-ease, a separation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has, you know, separated ourselves from each other, from and from our planetary home and the entire universe. And the point is, as a worldview of separation in that worldview, um, injustices, inequalities, exploitation, conflicts, and natural behaviors. When we turn that completely upside down to remember, we are literally inseparable from the whole world. Hmm. Then it seems to me that different behaviors emerge from that. Behaviors of relationship, behaviors of justice and peace and harmony, and ultimately belonging. So we're in a process, yes, of climate change. And to what degree, and I, my research suggests a very great degree, 
is our is our misunderstood treatment, our exploitation, mm. our destruction of environments, our mm. utter disruption of Gaia's incredibly intelligent way of balancing <coughs> the entire Gaia sphere. We have disrupted on a huge scale and, and huh. exploit and destroy. The point is, the sooner we wake up, the sooner we can hopefully help to alleviate the worst of this. I don't know whether we, I don't think personally we can stop some of it and it may be very, very challenging. Mm. What I do feel is if we don't wake up, we're going to go extinct. Mm. And we're going to take a lot, as we already are, a huge amount of Gaia's 4 billion own planetary story of evolution Mm. with us. And Mm. for me, that is unconscionable. I just, you know, the very thought of that. So anything that I can do, and I don't want to be pointing fingers and I don't want to be playing a blame game at all. When we're not aware, we're not aware. But the more of us that are becoming aware of this, the more we can share this new story, this unitive narrative of wholeness. Mm -hmm. And unity isn't uniformity. It's radical diversity. (laughs) It's empowering. It's To me, it's empowering and inspiring. And it offers us authentic hope. Mm -hmm. And our young people, authentic hope. And our children's children's children hope. So why wouldn't we do all that we can to serve and and to to, to share and to support a collective choice, a personal and collective choices? It seems that the younger people are, the more they're aware of climate change and what's going to could happen in the future. As the older people, there's less interest, I guess, or less knowledge or less willing to less awareness. That's awareness. It's all awareness. It's all awareness, Rob. And to be honest, I think anything that you guys can do, anything that, you know, I'm doing what I can do to share the message that that old paradigm of materialism separation is bullshit. Yeah. It's BS. (laughs) It's outworn any possibility of benefit. It really has. You need to lecture to politicians. (laughs) You don't, you don't think I am. I don't want to lecture anybody. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just saying you yeah. you need to talk to politicians like this. Okay, guys. <laughs> and I am. And yeah, I okay. am. And I'm talking to CEOs and I'm talking <laughs> Good. to transformational leaderships. I'm talking to educators. And I'm, mm. yeah, I'm to- basically, my mum used to say, I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I am and I will. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jude, we're coming to the end of our hour, but I I have one question. I should have asked this earlier, uh, but uh, this seems to me almost a a mystical thing with uh, solar eclipses in that. So the moon apparently was created when a large object, a planet or whatever, crashed into Earth, broke off and formed the moon. Now, when we have a solar eclipse, the amazing thing is the moon perfect perfectly fits over the sun i mean the, the we're our distance to the moon the moon's distance from the earth or from the sun it just that is amazing can you can you explain that <laughs> it is wonderful it is truly a cosmic amazement and it's 400 you know 400 times the size 400 right. times yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um i'm i'm a both and person in the sense that um, I'm open. I mean, I've been a mystic as well as a scientist all my life. A lot of the information that I've received, I've received through other ways of knowing Uh science. And it seems to me that every time, and I've experienced, I think, four um, total solar eclipses, and they are transformational. They are extraordinary. So in whatever way that this cosmic magic has arisen, you know, I thank I thank the universe mm. for it. And I, I'm sure that, you know, we have so much still. We're at the beginning. Yeah. We're at the beginning of, of being sort of, you know, we're beginning to sort of grow up, hopefully. 
as, as, as a universal species, I hope, I hope, I hope, I trust. Yeah. What mysteries, what adventures, what wonderful stories are still open to us. Hmm. And that's the right. point. I mean, I, I, like you, I just look at that and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I'm very open to mystical bases for that. Right. And we oh. didn't even get into the question of other life in the universe. And yeah, I was going to ask ask you if you thought that that what happened on Mars, if there was there ever life on Mars, and what where it looks as though there was. It looks yeah. more as though there was. And we've got flybys of Jupiter's moons uh-huh. coming up, um, probably at the end of the decade. And also, you know, we've got a number of moons like Europa, probably possibly going right. to meet, um, possibly Titan, you know, uh, that are able because because of the tidal forces within them, because of their proximity to Jupiter and Saturn, uh-huh. um, uh, it could be warm enough for liquid water um, under their ice crusts. And we've seen some early evidence for that. Um, as I write about in the story of Gaia, you know, it looks as though certainly Mars, and possibly Venus too, uh-huh. as well as Gaia, were water planets to begin with. Mars is a bit too far away from the sun and too small mm-hmm. to have been able to possibly go beyond early stages of a biosphere. Venus um, went went greenhouse and very, very hot, and therefore anything would have evaporated. But what we do know is that in the interstellar dust clouds and ga- clouds of dust and gas that are forerunners, for planetary systems, there's vast amounts of ice. You know, the analysis of water on, on our planetary home shows that possibly 50% or more of it is older than our solar system. Wow. Hmm. We also know that there are thousands of what are called exoplanets out in our galaxy. There's now a, a, a view that there are more planets in our galaxy than the stars. Hmm. And that's probably pretty much the same throughout the universe. Now, Gaia is very special. We could have a whole program just on this. But, <laughs> but, 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 biological life, the universe is evolved to create biological life as part of its journey of evolutionary complexity. The harbingers of biological life were already the organic molecules, the prebiotic molecules. We found all of those building blocks in gas and dust clouds in our galaxy. Yeah. Mm. The more yeah. we look, the more we find. Yeah, it's fascinating. My my dog is sitting here listening to you. He he even <laughs> sat down. It's like he's got this rapture expression look, on his face. He wants to go to the dog park. <laughs> he says, I know your hour is up. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Jude. Oh, this Jude, has been this fascinating. Has been, this has been great. I'd love to have you back on. Let me read your cosmic holograph first, <laughs> and we want to have please, you back on. Please do, and we could do a whole a whole session just on Gaia's journey because the uh-huh. story of her planetary journey is extraordinary in itself. But whatever you'd like, I'd be delighted to do that. Okay. Well, thanks so great. much. This Thank is just you. The, and John, when does the link for this go up? Uh, well, it should be today. Okay, and, so uh, I'll and, send you the link. And, and you, where where can people find you if they want to find yes. out more? Um, John, thank you. www.wholeworld-view.org is the best place. Um, the books are, you know, all over. Um, but wholeworld-view.org is probably the best place to find okay. not only what I'm about, but what I co-founded six years ago and what we've okay. been doing ever since. Cool. So yeah. thank all right, you great. all. And, well, we'll, share so word, we'll, sh- we'll, sh- we'll share the link through Inner Traditions and we'll share okay. it through our own Whole World View okay. network. Great. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. 
Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. And just real quick, this may be a tag on the end of the episode because uh, I've I've had a uh, I've had a debate going on with a good friend of mine for over twenty years about whether time travel is possible or not, <laughs> and uh, and so Daniel Henson, I'm sending you the link to this podcast, <laughs> and, and 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 so Jude, I'm on your side. <laughs> so, John, so, thank so you. The, only thing, the only thing Daniel Henson has going for him is that uh, he watched uh, Back to the Future one. <laughs> well, you know, if you, can, if you can land yourself a DeLorean car, it's kind of good, it? Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. Okay. Have a good day. Right. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks so All much. Right. Bye now. Thanks. Lots of love. Bye for now. <laughs>